0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today.
1: Have you ever wondered what humans have in common with bats, guinea pigs, and the world's largest rodent, the capybara. And have you ever wondered what that common thread might have to do with the South African wine trade? Well, before we get there, let's take it way back. Early navigation got a great start in the Mediterranean Sea, and sea trade flourished for millennia. But even with great seafaring technology, one of the main problems that plagued early sailors was the limits of the horizon. They could hop around the Mediterranean, no problem. And even the time and distance on ventures into the Atlantic, they could handle that too. But what couldn't they deal with? The lack of a fresh food supply. Sure, you can live off dried or cooked meats and preserved foods. But if you don't get enough vitamin C, you get the scurvy. Humans are susceptible to scurvy because of a mutant gene. It's something that we humans and just a few other animals have learned to live with. It's kind of crazy because the gene to make our own vitamin C is right there in our human genome. But it's been deactivated by this pesky mutation. You see, most animals and plants can make their own vitamin C. Their bodies produce ascorbic acid, and this is needed for collagen formation, which you need for all sorts of things, including having normal blood, connective tissue formation, and bone strength. There's just a few animals in the world that don't make their own vitamin C. Yep, you guessed it. Bats, guinea pigs, capybara, and us. This makes us and those giant rodents all susceptible to scurvy if we don't get our fix. When you get the scurvy, first you start acting a bit strange. Then a sudden pain hits your legs, and your gums start to swell and hurt. Your tongue puffs up and it grows sores. Your mucous membranes start to hemorrhage. Your cheeks sink in. Your teeth become loose and they start to fall out. You become extremely tired and lethargic. Your legs start to change colors. They grow dark spots on them and they start to look like big bruises. If you get cut or wounded, your body has a heck of a time healing the wound. Your eyes may turn yellow as you start to jaundice. It's a miserable downward spiral that almost always led to a burial at sea. During the three most intense centuries of the Age of Exploration, it's possible that up to two million sailors died from scurvy. Early explorers would leave with hundreds of men on expeditions, and they'd return with just a skeleton crew of a dozen or so who survived scurvy. The saddest thing about all this loss is that treating scurvy is easy. You just eat some vitamin C and pretty soon the symptoms go away. But what if you're in the middle of the ocean and land is months away? In that environment, scurvy can be a death sentence. It's also dangerous when you don't know what causes it. Scurvy killed so many because people didn't understand how to treat it. Most people thought it was a disease that showed up when you had a lack of fresh water and foods. Some doctors believed it was a lack of still air that caused the problem. Citrus seemed to make a difference, but when people boiled citrus into travel-worthy cakes, it didn't work because they had unwittingly boiled out the vitamin C. So then some doctors were led to believe that citrus wasn't the answer. Fresh meat seemed to make a difference, and cultures who ate their meat on the raw side didn't suffer as much. But on long journeys, preserved and well-salted meats didn't have the vitamin C content anymore. So then some doctors were led to believe that meat wasn't the answer. What did seem to make a difference was taking breaks on land and eating fresh fruits and vegetables. To keep sailors refreshed and healthy, seafaring peoples jumped at the opportunity to set up refreshing stations, or pit stops, that broke up long journeys for the sailors. These pit stops were necessary to keep them from getting too sick to function. A few islands that pop above water along the mid-Atlantic range in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean were extremely useful for thwarting scurvy. Ascension Island, St. Helena, and Tristan Islands. They all spread out remotely along the ridge, and they were vital. Islands like Madeira also played important roles in cross-Atlantic travel. And the Dutch needed one such rest area on their spice trade route to the Indies. In 1652, they sent Jan van Riebeek, To what is now Cape Town. His job was to set up a sustainable supply station where Dutch ships could take a break and resupply. A part of his job was to grow grapes and make wine. And at this stopping point, sailors could stock up on fresh fruits and veggies to keep them healthy. Though these pit stops became integrated in seafaring trade routes, they became less important once the link between citrus and scurvy was made. Suddenly, the daunting, life-threatening condition lost its chokehold over navigation. Products like Rosa's Lime Juice hit the market. Portable doses of vitamin C that saved lives on long journeys. Think about that next time you accidentally order a margarita in a dive bar. <laughs> All this kind of makes you wonder. If our vitamin C-producing gene had never mutated, would humans have gone to sea and globalized the world long before the age of exploration? If we had understood vitamins and known the real cause of scurvy, would we have needed rest stops so desperately? If scurvy hadn't held the navigation industry in its grip for so long, would Rebik's resupply station have been so necessary? And would South Africa have the wine industry it has today? The early dawn of South Africa's wine industry traces its history to the spice trade, and partly the need for sailors to resupply with fresh food and help prevent scurvy.
0: One of the first things I learned doing harvest in California is where to buy wine, and that is Bottle Barn. Classic wines, natural wines, cult wines, up-and-coming producers, excellent vintages, hard-to-source bottles, and daily drinkers, Bottle Barn has them all, and Bottle Barn has them all for great prices. Honestly, I, I really don't know how they do it. I've seen pricing from Bottle Barn for some fancy wines that is several hundred dollars less than I would have expected, and I've also seen wines for under 30 bucks that I would have expected to have been significantly more than that. Plus, when I get my wine, it's in perfect condition. That's why I do what all the best winemakers in California do. I shop at Bottle Barn. Try for yourself. Use the promo code VINO15 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com. That's V-I-N-O-1-5 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com. Yes. Avi Bierslaff of Cannonkop in the Stellenbosch in South Africa on the show today. Hello, sir.
2: How are you? Great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're at Cannonkop, which is a historical winery in the Stellenbosch near Cape Town? That's correct. Yes, I've been there since 2002. Cannonkop being about 40 miles east from Cape Town in the Western Cape area. And we're just outside about five miles outside of Stellenbosch. So what's the Stellenbosch region like as a whole? I think it's the most dense area for wineries. Uh, we have about close to 300 wineries in the area. And when you take in consideration South Africa, only have about 700 wineries. It's uh, uh, the highest density of wineries. And uh, it's also one of the oldest, older areas. So uh, um, I think people have been growing grapes there. You know, the French Hook area, just uh, around the corner from us, been growing grapes since the late 1600s. They were growing grapes before the people were growing grapes in the Medoc. So it's, uh, yes, we are uh, new, considered to be new world, but we are, uh, certainly been making wine for a long time.
0: And there was a history there of selling to sailors.
2: That's right, yeah. Our name, Canonkop means Cannon Hill. So on the hill, on the property, there's a cannon um, that was used as a signaling cannon back in the 1700s. So as ships came from Europe on the way to the Far East, they would stop in the harbor. The lookout would spot them and they would fire a shot. Uh, And then the farmers in that area would know to take their produce down to the harbor to go trade with the ships. So it was a signaling cannon back in those days. And uh, we still shoot a cannon every now and then when we release a new wine. So we still have a bit of fun with it. We just shoot blanks nowadays, but it's uh, still a lot of fun. So is it a range of? Different kinds of
0: wines and different kinds of terroirs, or is it more one thing in the Stellenbosch?
2: You know, this is one of our strengths: is the diversity that we have. Stellenbosch is a lot of different types of soils, ranging from granite to Table Mountain sandstone. We have, uh, you know, a lot of different altitudes, ranging from around two hundred meters up to about four hundred meters. Um, different slopes, and I think all of that contributes to the the different wines that can produce and grow. So we're about 20 to 30 miles from the one ocean. And uh, the closer you get, the more uh, the temperatures become much more moderate. The closer you get to the the ocean where we are, we will have warm day temperatures and and really cool night temperatures. And uh, all of this will have an effect on, on what varieties are grown. Uh, you know, some of the best Chenin Blancs, uh, which is quite becoming quite popular out of South Africa, is coming from the Stellenbosch area. Uh, we've been um, growing uh, unbelievable Shiraz grapes from, from the area. And then uh, on our property, we've got to grow mainly four varieties, of which Cabernet and Pinotage makes up about 80% of our plantings. And then we have a bit of Merlot and Cab Franc and a very small patch of Petit Verdot.
0: So Pinotage is a great variety that's very associated with South Africa, but it's also very associated with Cannon Cop. And what is Pinotage?
2: Um, we are one of the first farms to plant Pinotage uh, back in the mid-40s already. And the reason for that is the owner of that stage, he was good friends with a couple of other farmers that uh, was in the surrounding area, and they all played rugby together. And then the one of the researchers at Elsenburg uh, Agricultural College, he propagated Pinotage, and. One evening after a game, he, they showed him some Pinotage wines and they all liked it. And that's, those guys were the pioneers of Pinotage. They started to plant it. And that's how Pinotage came to life. But the variety was, was created back in 1924 when Professor Isaac Pierrold, he took the, the pollen of the Pinot Noir plant and he, he put it on the flower of the Sinso plant. Sinso back then was called Hermitage in South Africa. And that's where the name Pinotage comes from, from Pinot Noir and Tage from Hermitage. So it's actually the Cinso grape, not, not as, uh, as Hermitage as they named it uh, back then. So he did the cross-pollination, and then the berries that developed from that, the seeds inside was the new Pinotage seeds. He, he planted them, and, uh, and that's how Pinotage got started. Um, the first commercial Pinotage was only made in 1959, so it took a couple of years before the, re- the variety really took off. In the 60s, there was a lot of excitement around Pinotage. Uh, a lot of plantings took place. You know, a lot of people also planted Pinotage because it can bear quite a bit of fruit, which is not always the best wines. Uh, won't produce the best wines, but it can bear uh, quite a bit of fruit. Then in the 70s, a group of British wine masters came to South Africa and tasted, unfortunately, just some bad examples of Pinotage. They said that Pinotage uh, tastes like rusty nails and nail varnish. Not that I've ever tried that, but I, you know, we trust them. And uh, then in the 80s, uh, a lot of pinotages was taken out because of what these guys said. And uh, and I think a lot of people lost some confidence in the variety. And in 1991, my predecessor, Bayer Stritter, he won the Robert Mondavi trophy at the International Wine and Spirits competition for the best Winemaker of the winemaker of the year, and he won it with a pinotage, uh, the eighty nine pinotage.
0: He was the winemaker at Cup before you.
2: That's right. He was at Canonkop for twenty three years, and uh, that put a lot of attention on the variety. So people were asking, so where does this come from? What does it taste like? So that was the first thing I think that stirred the attention around pinotage. The second thing that happened was ninety four after sanctions was lifted in South Africa, people wanted to try something from South Africa that wasn't available before. So people were exporting a lot of pinotage and unfortunately, again, a lot of bad pinotages. You also have to understand during isolation, I think a lot of winemakers were only making wine for the South African palate and not uh, for the international palate because the wines weren't exported. So uh, after 94, all of that changed. And now people were commenting on South African wines and what they taste like, what they thought of them. Unfortunately, Pinotage was one of the, the, the black sheep of our uh, um, industry at that point. In 1995, the Pinotage Association was formed to help and look at the quality of, of Pinotage and try to move away from all these bad examples of Pinotage. So
0: when that professor did that crossing, it's a crossing, right? That's
2: right. It's a cross.
0: What was he hoping to do? Like, what was the goal?
2: Well, the, there's a couple of different theories about this, um, but the one that makes most sense is uh, Professor Perald was an expert on Pinot Noir. He lived in Burgundy for for a couple of years, and he was sanctioned by the South African government to bring back new clones of Pinot Noir to South Africa. But Pinot Noir is not really all that well suited for our conditions, and uh, the theory is that he crossed it with sinso to make it a bit more hardy for our, our environment and also to push up the yields of Pinot Noir back in those days. So that's the theory. The other theory is that he just loved to drink Pinot Noir and loved to drink sinso. So uh, uh, that, that also makes sense to me.
0: Is it planted widely outside of the Stellenbosch or is Pinotage and the Stellenbosch really related?
2: It's also widely planted quite widely out of Salambosh and it's quite a hardy variety. When you look at uh, under which conditions it can grow, so uh, even in dry or warmer conditions, pinatars still does extremely well, and uh, so it's it's planted widely through the country. As far as I know, last year the most grafted plants, vines that you could buy pinotage Was Pinotage was the most grafted plants available. So there's a big demand for the variety and a lot of people are, are, are planting Pinotage at this stage.
0: So you refer to bad Pinotage and good Pinotage and for you, what's the difference between those two things?
2: There's a, there's a big difference. Some of my colleagues will tell me I'm, I'm wrong but I, you know, I've been working with Pinotage for, for many years, even before I, I joined Canonko while I was still at Swartland Winery. And the problem is not with the variety. The problem is with the way that you make it and the way that you handle it. So when you look at how people make wine in Burgundy, it's very different from how the people make wine in Bordeaux. But you have to handle those grapes very individually. And unfortunately, people are not handling Pinotage in the right way. So that's the first, that's probably the biggest problem. And how should they handle it differently? You know, Pinotage has a very short fermentation uh, period. If I pick Pinotage and Cabernet on exactly the same day and at exactly the same sugar level, and I add the same yeast and I ferment at the same temperature, Pinotage will complete fermentation in three days. Cabernet will complete fermentation anything from seven days to two weeks. So you have a much slower fermentation temperature on Cabernet, and I'm taking it just as an example, compared to Pinotage. And the main reason for that is the nutrient content of pinotage is, is much higher. So there's much more food for the yeast. So the, the temper of fermentation is just so much quicker. So this is, this is a big problem because pinotage, the structure can be quite aggressive if you don't manage your extraction carefully. So at Canonkop, we do punch downs like pizzage every two hours, 24 hours a day. And we want to focus our extraction at the first part of fermentation because then your alcohol level is still low. So from inoculation until about halfway through fermentation, we will do a a punch down every two hours. And then we will also look very carefully at the structure and the extraction of the wine. If we see it's a vintage where it's quite aggressive, we we will bring down the punch down intervals to four, six or eight hours. If we see it's a much lighter vintage, we will carry on with two hour intervals. But it's very important to know that as the wine ferments and the alcohol increases, your solubility changes in your product. So what you're going to extract at the end of fermentation is very different than what you're going to extract from the beginning of fermentation. And that's where you have to be careful with pinotage. So because it ferments so quickly, only in three days, your window period of extracting at low alcohol is much shorter. So you need to do this much more intensely than with other varieties. So that's a very important point. The second important thing is that pinotage has a high pH. So if you if you don't know what type of microbiology is taking place in your wine, you're gonna end up with some some bad bacteria. So especially during malolactic fermentation, if you don't know what's taking place, you know what's what's going on in your wine, you can end up with wines that go through malolactic by pediococcus or lactobacillus bacteria. And these, these bacteria can actually form acrylene, which is a bitter component. So sometimes when you have pinotage with a more bitter finish, it's, a lot, it's not the variety, it is actually bacteria that made, made, uh, created the acrylene. So these are all factors that you have to take into account. And unfortunately, this is things, if you don't look at them, you know, you're going to burn your fingers. This is, these are quite important things that you have to look at. So pinotage, you can't make like other varieties. Other varieties naturally has lower pH, so you don't have those problems.
0: So you said the key is to extract and to extract quickly with Pinotage. What are the skins like in Pinotage
2: when it comes into the winery? Uh, pinotage skins are quite thick, but also the berry size is slightly bigger. So it's not, uh, you know, you also look at uh, skin thickness, but also in, in, in considering the size of your berries. So the, it's quite a thick skin and, and the older the vineyards get, the thicker the skins become. Uh, younger plants have much thinner skins and it's always interesting to see when we do our punch downs, how it diff- how it's different from young vineyards to old vineyards. The young vineyards always punch down easily because the, the amount of skins to juice are less. And when you come to the old plants, it's really tough to punch them through the juice. So it's a, it's much thicker skins on the older plants compared to the younger, younger uh, vineyards. But also interesting, we grow everything bush vines, unirrigated, and this will have a big effect on, uh, on the size of the berries and the bunches. When you grow plants in a bush vine form, and in, in our area we get quite a bit of wind, the wind will limit the growth of the shoot of the plant. And When you limit the growth of the shoot naturally by wind, you also have shorter internodes, and when you have shorter internodes, you get smaller bunches and smaller berries. And that's what you want. You want that type of concentration coming naturally from your plant. Uh, you don't want to uh, create it artificially.
0: So, have you done experiments with pinotage on trellises on
2: wires? We have. Uh, there's one area in the farm that was so windy that we had to trellis the vineyards because it was just we were losing too much yield every year. And as soon as we put it on trellis, the berry size increased by twenty percent.
0: That's really interesting.
2: It is interesting, you know. And 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 as we go along, this was not planned or as an experiment. We just needed to to stabilize the production of that vineyard but then you, you understand why you know, you need to grow them bush vines. And nowadays we are planting specific cover crops to help us protect the plant against wind.
0: So do you do straight pinotage parcels or is that interplanted with other
2: grape varieties? It's specific parcels. We have eight specific parcels that we grow pinotage on. It will be different uh, altitudes, different soils, different slopes, and we will make them all separate, ferment them separate, age them separate, and then do the final blending just before bottling,
0: so that must be interesting to see what the pinotage gives off of different kinds of characteristics of soil. And
2: it's really interesting, you know. The uh, we work mainly with granites, but the granites are also uh, depends on how the granite, where the granites developed. So if you have granites that developed above the water, you have much more deeper red soils. When the granites developed under the water, you have almost more of a, a little gravel in the soil, which is very different soils. Um, the ones that developed under the water, you'll have like black, uh, looks like black gravel, but when you, when you really put some forth and they, they crumble. So these soils, they retain moisture in those rocks, but they limit the growth of your roots. So you have a lesser root system, but you have still the same moisture retention, uh, in that type of soils.
0: Have you had a chance to experiment with Pinotage that wasn't on granite?
2: I'm doing a pinotage on shale, which is really interesting. Um, you know, with the cadet wine that we are making, we are buying a lot of grapes from all over Stellenbosch, mainly neighbours, but also uh, some other spots. And
0: so, for your less expensive pinotage, for the less expensive, you buy
2: in grapes. That's correct. Yeah, we've you know the volume has outgrown our property. the The cadet is a blend of pinotage, cabernet, and merlot. And uh, um, as the years gone by, it just outgrown the property, so we went and sourced fruit, but we still manage those vineyards. And it's really, for me, uh, stimulating to see how pinotage on shales have more perfume and elegance to the structure where the granites are more grippy and has more dark fruit. So it's very reflective of the site where it grows on. And I think that's really the tools that we can use to make more interesting pinotages. Have you had any experience with pinotage in alluvial soils? Pinotage and alluvial soils, unfortunately, the, you have a lot of growth and you have a lot of you have big yielding. You, you struggle to find the balance between the yields and the growth of the plant and the alluvial soils. Pinotage just like grows like crazy on alluvial soils. and uh, We have a small patch of that, but it's, it doesn't make the best wine. The, the richness of the soils on those alluvial soils that I find uh, has, uh, has a big effect on pinotage.
0: Like the organic matter. Exactly, yeah. Because it's already high in nutrients, the yes, grape variety. Exactly, yeah. So it when just, you
2: add, it's like a, a critical mass, you know. You just pinotage, if you can plant it on more marginal soils, it actually, you know, presents uh, a really interesting character, which is perhaps more quality-driven than too-rich soils in South Africa. In general, I think our soils are actually too fertile. You know, we have some of the oldest soils in the world, and and they are really rich, and uh, so. When you look at not only pinotage but cabernet also in general, you know this. You have a lot of growth, and and I I really want the plant to to stop growing at veraison. You know they must be at veraison. The the shoots must stop growing naturally, and we find that with this especially with the older vineyards. But if you don't find that if the plant keeps on growing, it t- those wines tend to be much more vegetative, especially on the cabernets, pinotage. You know you don't get the concentration that you want. You don't get the exactly the right pro- fruit profile that you want. But with uh, with Cabernet, you find that the wines are much more vegetative because they just focus on on growth rather than just ripening the fruit. We have one spot of a shallow, quite a shallow layered clay soil that we plant our Bordeaux blend varieties, the Cab, Merlot, Cab on and it's a very shallow soil with a, uh, the clay layers like fifty centimeters under the soil, and uh, so that limits the growth of the roots. The roots can't go in there. And because of that, it limits also the growth of the shoots. So the balance it finds on that specific soil is fantastic. And we make a a very successful wine from that, the Paul Sauer. But uh, 40 years ago, when that vineyard was planted, the viticulturists actually told the guys back then that they should uh, not plant uh, vineyards and keep grazing uh, grazing and keep sheep on the land. Just uh, because, you know, I think the way that we understand what is good for a plant and what's good for making wine is two different things.
0: So, in other words, if it restrains the growth of the plant, that's good for the taste of the wine?
2: To a certain extent, yeah. I think you, know, you also can get soils that's really too poor. You know, if you could take a very sandy soil with deep sandy soils, that's not as good either. So, you're, uh, you want the right type of stress on your plant. And if you can have you know, soils with a lot of rock in them, that actually limits growth of the roots as well, compared to just deep sandy soils, which I don't find to be all that interesting.
0: What's the rootstock situation like? Is it fairly consistent? Or?
2: Yeah, the rootstock is Richter 99 that we normally use, but nowadays a lot of people are planting on uh, one hundred one fourteen, and the reason is because it uh, it's ripens a l- earlier, and also it's a shallower root system. But most of the pinnata can non-corpus plant at Richter 99. It, uh, it actually can increase the vigor of the plant, which is not all that great, but a lot of, luckily most of those vineyards are old now, so you, you don't get that vigor anymore so what's the normal growing season like i mean
0: when do you decide that you need to harvest is there a climactic or weather or i mean is there some sort of event that determines when the harvest should happen
2: well we start picking normally end of uh, january and uh, and that will carry through till some vintages uh second week april so it's quite a long um picking season for us which is i
0: mean the- january to april is your picking season
2: Well, yeah, it can be. We also, some vintages, we start only February, but normally not later than the first week February and finishing the last week March. But it can be from third week January till second week April. And you're just talking about red wines. Only reds. No, I've never
0: really heard of anything like that.
2: Yeah, it's it's quite a wide or long spread. uh, And that's that's just because you guys like to take
0: long lunches,
2: like the Harvest (laughs) Crew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish. No, it's uh, it's just like the grapes ripen. I think our, our weather conditions change quite dramatically around the end of February, where you will have really warm, dry conditions, November, December, January, and February. Uh, beginning of March, things starts to cool down. You know, you have cooler nights, the day temperatures come down. And I think that has a big effect on the ripening of the Cabernets. So that slows down the ripening quite dramatically. So the beginning is quite a rush, you know, getting everything in. And because we have about 50% of our vineyard spinatage, it's like the window period is, is quite small. Um, but uh, I think the changing weather conditions around March, end of February, beginning March, has a big effect on why things slow down at that point. Now, if you can make it through to March, you know, you, you're, you you feel like you're like over the worst of the harvest. So if you've got a lot of wind, you probably don't have a lot of problems with rocks. We don't. No, we have very little problems with rot. You know, in my years, I've never seen probably more than 2% rot in specific vintages. It's really, it's not worth mentioning, Uh, which is great. You know, which is great. It also helps us that we don't have to spray as much.
0: So what are the downsides of growing in the region? I mean, if you don't have problems with rot and you have a long harvest window, what are some of the difficulties? Do you have problems with dead arm or anything like
2: that? We have. We have big problems with red leaf virus, row leaf virus. We are working hard on that. Um, I, I don't know if we can ever eradicate it, but, uh, you know, we manage it very carefully. You know, the way that we approach work in the vineyards, we will never work from an infected vineyard to a healthy vineyard. We'll always start the day from a, from a healthy vineyard and then carry on to an infected vineyard if necessary.
0: So is that like the same as leaf roll? Yeah, it's oh, leaf roll. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
2: leaf roll virus, which is a big issue in South Africa.
0: Does it limit yields a lot? Does it bring the yields
2: down? Well, on pinotage is not a big problem because you know it's an early ripening variety, so the time when the when the virus takes effect, you know, we already harvested. But something with like cabernet, which is a late ripening variety, it actually limits the lifespan of the plant. So now you have to remove the plant at the age of 25 years instead of you know being able to work with really old. Cabernets. Very seldom you'll find old cabernets in South Africa just due to that. But it's not only that, you also have your type of, your trunk diseases, you know, all of those things that, that becomes a problem. You know, in the old days, we always thought, no, you have to cut your, your vines, that they always look neat. And if uh, um, there's like big pieces that are not supposed to be there, we have to cut them off, never mind the size of the wound that you make. Nowadays, you know, it's a total different approach. And um, I, I think in, in 20, 30 years from now, hopefully we'll be able to see the benefits of the changes we are making now. Is there a time
0: in the year when there's a hard frost?
2: Not really. Stellenbosch, because it's quite close to the oceans, we don't feel those, uh, we don't get the frost. When you can go inland, you can get frost.
0: Because sometimes some of the things that you're talking about, like leaf roll and eutypa, I've found that they are sometimes related to areas that
2: never get that kind of hard reset. That's very true. I think our conditions are mild, so that's why a lot of these diseases stay alive. So you do definitely have some old pinotage vines, though, because you make the black label from them. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a sixty-three-year-old pinotage. It was, it was planted in nineteen fifty-three. Uh, that's as far as we know the second oldest pinotage vineyard in South Africa, or in the world, for that matter. And uh, um, yeah, so we're making we're making a wine called the uh, the black label. It doesn't say black label anywhere. It's just a Canon that's black we started making that in 2006 and the reason for that wine was that we um, every year I make these eight different sites make them separate from each other I age them separately and then just before bottling I will taste through all the wines and decide if there's a specific vineyard that I don't want to use for that specific year and every year I come to this specific vineyard and I try the wine and it's just unbelievable. And then a day or two after that, I have to blend it away. And that wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for me that this vineyard has been growing for 63 years, and I am the person that's that just blending it away. Nobody gets to see this wine. So we bottled 1,000 bottles with the idea of using it for marketing purposes. Then after two years, we were still sitting like on 950 bottles. We decided on creating this black label wine and and, and, and I love the whole idea that the, this wine was created from the soil upwards, not from the boardroom downwards. You know, the wine showed itself first before we decided what we wanted to do with it. You know, it's, it wasn't a wine where people decided a price point and then worked towards that. It, was, it just happened naturally. And I think that's how wine should actually develop in the world, not just being thought out around a table. The, the grape and the quality of the grapes and the quality of the fruit must be there first. Then you can make all the other decisions. So with those different parcels of pinotage, were
0: they all handled the same way in the winery in terms of fermentation length and
2: maceration? Every parcel of pinotage will be managed individually, and that means the way that we can extract them will also be managed individually. So if I fill this specific vineyard, and normally it's the younger vineyards, needs more punch downs, then I'll do more punch down with the older plants. You know, I can get away with less because I think the structure is just there. It's it. Sometimes I'm quite scared of the structure because it just becomes big, but big in a different way. It's not big like dry tannins, cabernet style. It's more in the in the side of your mouth, and with a sweet mid palate, sweet not sugar sweet, but fruit sweetness in the mid palate.
0: So I think that I've experienced some of that with Pinotage before because I have had a sense that there was some some tannins, some grip, certainly, some savory character, but then also kind of a plush sweetness as well to the fruit. And I think that seems to me to be the trick, is that they're not always on the same page, those two parts of the pinotage. But one of the things that's kind of drawn me to some of the Cannon Cop wines of my experience is that they seem more harmonious. They seem of a whole. They balance each other in a way that... Kind of reminds me of certain Italian wines, the way they can be like
2: agro mm-hmm. dolce, like sweet and sour at the yeah. same time, yeah or certain Greek wines. I, I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. I think the, the to find that balance, you need to be, I think, mature enough in your winemaking to be able to decide how much is enough and how much is too little. You can make pinotage that is uh, really dark in color, but still very light in structure, almost have no tannins, and then you just get the sweetness. Or you can leave it on the skins for too long, and then you you go the other direction. The wine, the, the structure, is going to be too harsh and too aggressive. Uh, the sweetness is still going to be there, but it will be out of balance to compare to the rest of the wine. So I think to to manage that correctly and deciding on when to separate skins from juice, that's 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 where the 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 real trick lies.
0: And is that basically just for you a judgment call based off tasting?
2: Tasting well in the beginning it was tough. You know, it was not easy thing. You you need a couple of years behind the belt if, to to make that decisions. In the beginning I was working on you know, just uh, I just luck probably. I I don't know. I and I tasted a lot with the previous winemaker, which helped, you know, a lot. Uh and I you know, I could always he's what was always open for me to to go ask questions and we're still friends today. We still taste a lot together. And uh, that that definitely helped me to get on par quickly with what uh or, you know what the wine should taste like because he was kind of a Pinotage guru. Exactly, Albert twitter was. You know that man has done more for Pinotage than the rest of South Africa has done together. You know he he makes Pinotage burgers at his restaurant. He makes uh, he makes uh, Pinotage frozen yogurt. He makes Pinotage salami. <laughs> you name it. Every I, I, he's, I, I don't know about a dog called Pinotage yet, but he's everything is, is Pinotage. His whole life.
0: That's kind of amazing. Did he ever tell you why? Uh, kind of obsession began with that.
2: The uh, he said the first wine that made sense to him was a uh, I think it was eighty seven Simon Sire Pinotage. It's a farm that's about uh, about three miles from us. And uh, the the person at that stage, he bought a couple of new barrels. You know, new barrels back in those days were a real rarity, and. He at that stage he didn't have any wine to put into barrels except the pinotage, and he put the pinotage in the barrels, and uh, until the next season when he wanted to use it ca- actually on cabernet, and then after this wine matured, Bayos got to try it, and he said that just knocked his socks off, and uh, that's what really put him onto the variety, and he said that was one of the best wines he's tried in his young you know winemaking career. And, uh, um, that is, that is how he uh, really believed in, in, got to believe in the variety. And from then onwards, he was just like, I think committed. I think when he started at Canon in 81, you know, the, the old vineyard was already what, 20, 30 years old. I think, uh, work, working already with some older Pinotages was, was probably the other thing. Yet. I'm I'm not sure, but, uh, I think he, he just understands the variety and, you know, we always joke that uh, that people's palates need to develop to understand Pinotage. You know, you have to work through a lot of other varietals to get to understand the variety, which is not always true. But it is a it is a variety that I think offers so much. You know, from the sweetness that we talked about, the savoriness, the different layers. You know, you can you can have every, anything from tomato cocktail through to truffles through to forest floor to plums, black currants, you know, it's a really a good pinotage has a lot of those different characters and, and layers of flavor, and then a specific savoriness to the palate, which I, I adore, and I think really is, is pretty.
0: It was probably a period of time during the embargo era where there wasn't a lot of new wood around. Like, that sounds somewhat unusual that someone got some new wood.
2: It, yeah, it does. I think the, you know, the imports into the country was not so much limited as, as was the exports out of the country. I know, you know, we we got some in the eighties we got some uh new barrels at Canonkop. You know, we've been doing business with Demtos for more than forty years. I think the winemaker before Bayer Streeter Jan Boland could see her he he bought the uh, Demtos barrels and then back in those days the owner of Demtos he actually come hand delivered the barrels <laughs> because it was quite a, a scarce thing to, to sell new barrels into South Africa. Um, but yeah, we've been using it. And, and you know, one of my unbelievable experiences I had was a 76 Canonco Cabernet that uh, Jan Boland, the winemaker of those wines, presented. And he made three different wines from, from that vintage. One was unwooded, one was in small barrels, and one was in big, big vats. And we tried those three wines next to each other, and it was it was almost impossible to see which ones were oaked and which ones were unoaked. Oh, is that it true? It's just, uh, yeah. Over the years, you know, the oak becomes much less of influence, and it all becomes it's also about it's all about the fruit. It's all about the grapes. It's not about the wood anymore, and which was for me an eye-opening experience. And uh, you no, know, uh, so today I'm I'm you know you much more you know that the wood influence is much more on a on a, on a I would say the first 10, 15 years. After that, the wood starts to integrate. It becomes much less of a, if you have the right quality fruit, of course, uh, becomes much less of a factor. Yeah, so every time you, you try wines, you, know, you learn something new, and um, that was a good experience.
0: So for me, Demtos has a certain signature, because you know, it was the Robert Mondavi Cooper for a long
2: time. I've seen it in Rioja. The specific character of Demtos used, always used to be like more of a coffee mocha character. Moo specifically dark chocolate character, but they've changed you know the whole barrel scene has changed dramatically over the years they because it was labeled like that they they tried to move a bit more, slightly away from that so the the barrels i would say is in general um does not have that specific character anymore although I want a bit of that in in my wine i you know I use on the pulsar or Bordeaux blend I use about 30% uh, um, dentos and I want I want that contribution because I blend barrels. You know, I will use Sega Moreau, Nadelli, and Demtos together for specific reasons, where the Sega Moreau will be the base, the structure of, of, of the wine. The, the Natalie will have more a charry character, and I like the mocha flavors of the Demtos, but now it's not there anymore. So now we we are actually working on specific toastings just for Canon Corp. So when I order my Demtos barrels, I ask for the Canon Corp toasting, which is quite specific for us. Hmm, that's interesting.
0: They actually have a specific cannon cop toasting. They
2: have a specific cannon cop toasting, yeah. They do it with a cannonball. They just <laughs> shoot the cannonball into it and then... Well, I'm I'm sure some something like that.
0: <laughs> so but sometimes you guys have done pinotage in steel, right? Like Agent Steel.
2: Yes, yeah, I know we've done that. And you know, I think the barrel does a lot for just polishing the structure of pinotage. I, I feel pinotage when it's in tank you know, the structure still stays so tight for such a long period of time. So I find the tannins also be more harsh and more, slightly more aggressive and sharp when it ages in tank compared to barrel. I prefer to age, the, to age all our wines in small oak, even if it's older barrels. But uh, um, I, you need to make a different style of Pinotage if you want to do tank. You know, you have to go to a lighter style of wine. You have to be careful with your extraction if you want to age it in tank. Does it ever tend towards reduction, pinotage? There's some vintages, you know. I've got such a a challenge with fermentation and with pinotage and, and and H2S production. It's it's very vintage related. You know, some years you get every second tank forms a reductive character, and these characters are is mainly during fermentation. You know, pinotage doesn't get uh, if if it, everything was done right in the beginning, you don't get a, a reductive character later on. But I struggle because what, what you know, my, the theory is, and I've talked to a lot of, of researchers about this, the theory is that because it has such a high nutrient uh, composition, the juice, the exponential growth of the amount of yeast in the fermenting must just becomes too high. It's actually too much yeast for the fermentation. That's also why the, the speed of the fermentation is quick. So what will happen, you, you inoculate with yeast, and then the and normally it goes up from, from one what's one, uh, one million cells to hundred million cells, but now with pinotage you have uh, you have a higher nutrient content. So so this yeast thinks okay so this is this is you know fantastic breeding ground for me, and uh, so the amount of cells actually increase above the, the hundred million. Cell level, so now you're ending up with more yeast that you actually need so so now you have more yeast and these and this yeast actually sucks up and 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 use the nutrients much quicker as what what would have happened at the lower yeast count and now all of a sudden there's a there's a need for for more nutrients because you get the the formation of if there, if there's no, not enough ammonia in the in the juice. Get the formation of H2S. And then second day of fermentation, I'm ending up with with wines uh, smelling like H2S, reductive characters. And it's just a really frustrating and uh, 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 and I've, I've, I've talked to many people from around the world. We we are going to do uh, with the next couple of years. We're going to take some juice and send it over to France to be analy- analyzed, and trying to find a trend of what, how can we predict this, and how can we challenge this, how can we manage this, and and, the, and that's the only way. We're going to find a trend to see this is what the the juice uh, looked like that specific vintages, and those vintages are the ones we had problems with.
0: So does that mean that you rack it off the gross leaves in general as soon as possible, or
2: that's a good that's a you but. Know, great to 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 hear somebody make that uh, type of uh, assumption just on what we talk to because pinotage and lease doesn't work well together we get it off the lease as quickly as possible and then after malolactic fermentation I give it a sterile filtration because uh, I think partially also because you have uh, you don't know what's what's growing in that in the uh, lease because of your higher pH so it's I've never had uh, improvement of quality due to lease contact.
0: When you blend pinotage with something else, because sometimes you blend it with Bordeaux grape varietals.
2: You know, pinotage has because it has that sweet mid palate. It really blends well with something like cabernet. It just softens up cabernet. Actually, in South Africa, there's a lot of wines that it has a percentage five to ten percent of pinotage in. A lot of guys don't mention it because they still want to have you know. 100% cab or shiraz, whatever on their label, so they do not even mention the Pinotage was used, but it's, as far as I know, there's a couple of producers that use Pinotage just to soften up the palate to make it more accessible. Recently, you started making a rosé from Pinotage, right? That's right. 2010 was actually the first year already, and this is specific vineyards that we grow for rosé. It's not like a, a bleeding of the other things to, to make a rosé. It is a specific vineyard, and we pick it specifically for rosé. We also broadened our... Range by keeping back a thousand cases of Pinotage since 2000 and re-releasing them when they are 10 years old. So now at the Salador you can buy a 2006 and a 2014 together, so that people can see what older Pinotage wines look like. I think when you try some older Pinotage, the younger ones makes more sense. You know, it's easier to understand the older Pinotage compared to a young Pinotage where nobody, very few people in the world have reference. To you know, what a young pinotage would taste like. But when you have older pinotage, you see a lot of uh, flavors, I think, that people associate with and, and can recognize. So, what does that maturity curve look like? I mean, does it go linear? Does it change
0: into one thing or does it go through ups and downs? Or
2: When you have young pinotage, it's very dark and dense and concentrated, the fruit profile. As it matures, you know, it opens up, the black fruit becomes more like red fruit. You know, you, you start to see the Pinot Noir parent much more clearly in a matured Pinotage. You know, they, you have a development of savory characters, like I said, mentioned earlier on, uh, truffles, forest floor, those type of characters starting to get through, and it just, uh, I think, your, your layers become more evident in in older Pinotage. So that sweetness of the fruit of the young Pinotage, it turns more savory? It turns more savory, yeah. It's not as sweet anymore.
0: And what's the outlying curve? I mean, how long can it go?
2: Vintages is, is very important. If you have the right vintages, like uh, for us, you know, good vintages, 95, 91, 2003, 2009, all great vintages. Those wines, I would be surprised if they can't age for 30 years at least. I would be surprised. I've had some older Pinotages from the 60s, from the 70s, very lightly oaked Pinotages that's still in fantastic condition you know and and it's really fun to see how people not struggle but trying to figure out what they're tasting if we have blind tasting with all the pinotages you know people from around the world they just they didn't know what they're having it's uh, it really becomes interesting to see that so what's
0: the difference between a good vintage for pinotage and a not so good vintage for pinotage
2: i would say in general good vintages Uh, For South Africa, it's not only for pinotard, but in general, it's cooler vintages because we have a short ripening period and we want a little bit longer hanging time. So um, I would say the right amount of wind to limit growth of the plant. And a good winter rain, we have like the plant got enough rest and you have enough cold because the the winter rain actually takes a cold into the soil um, to break the rest of the plant. Then you want, at certain points, you want enough stress so that the berry size doesn't increase too much. And then enough wind to stop the growth of the plant, and again after the raisin, I I want to have some water again, so some rain to just uh, translocate all the flavors, all the you know the, the phenolics into the berries that you want. If it's too stressful at that time, you know, and you don't get the best quality wine, but that counts for most varieties. You know, it's not only Pinotage, but that's for most varieties on our property.
0: So I know you do punchdowns and big lagars basically, but. Does that mean that then
2: you're using a whole cluster too? Is it all stems or it's all these stems, all sorted berries, it's all crushed berries? We have a very short ripening time, so our stems aren't ripe. I, I can see people using green stems on Shiraz to increase uh, the freshness of the wine, and but on Pinotage it just tastes more phenolic. You know, I can see the difference from where we. When we didn't de stem and where we are, uh, when we didn't sort the berries, there was a lot of small pieces of stem going through to, compared to what we have now. You could see just the, the profile of, of ripeness just increase. So, if someone were coming
0: to you today, like you came to your predecessor at Cannon Cop and said, Hey, I need to understand how to handle pinotage as a grape variety, as you know, I'm a winemaker, I want to make some
2: pinotage, but what would be the key things that you would tell them? If he's my neighbor growing grapes right next to me um, and I have a lot of similarities when it comes to soil, you know, the, the first thing is to to decide on the picking date. And pinotage, you know, it's it's another word. You know, in the, the association, we moved away from words like, like jammy. we will rather use confitire, which sounds much sure. more interesting. A little compote or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, compote. But you want to get to the point where you have a bit of that of that compote character coming through when you taste the berries. Then when you chew the skins, you don't want to have that over-aggressive structure anymore. It it must be soft and and, and savory almost as the skins. The pips in South Africa, again, because we have a very short ripening period, very seldom that you get the pips to be 100% ripe. So I, I look at them, but that's not a determining factor. Then on, on analysis, you know the the grapes are normally around twenty four to twenty five bricks. We found that around fourteen percent alcohol is a good good alcohol level for pinotage, and so that's more or less a sugar level we will we will pick at. The pH can't be, you know, the pH needs to be about between three point five and three point seven. That's and that's again on our property. This may vary as when you get closer to the ocean, and the the malic acid can't be too high. Then that's, that will help you determine the picking when you're going to pick the grapes. When you get to the cellar, de-stem it, crush it, and then we we use a yeast that's quite quite weak because the wild ferments, together with the, the high nutrient contents and together with the open-top ferments, you know, you're you mixing a lot of oxygen in there. It also speeds up the tempo of the fermentation. I, we use a weak yeast just to get an extra 6 hours or 8 hours, 10 hours of on the fermentation and then intense extraction, you know, if I have to say the first half of bricks every two hours and then you go to six hours until dry, just as a standard procedure I will recommend something like that, then after, after fermentation, get it off the lease, inoculate with bacteria get it through malactic, malalactic bacteria as quickly as possible and then you do a sterile filtration, and then to play it safe, go to second full barrels you know, instead of New Oak. You have to understand your structure to handle, to handle New Oak. Go to second full barrels, and you'll be, you'll be making a pretty decent Pinotage. I've always said I can make pretty decent Pinotage from probably 80% of Pinotages in South Africa.
0: Abri Bierslau has been familiar with the taste of Pinotage grapes for over a decade. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Abri Bierslau is the winemaker at Cannon Cop in the Stellenbosch of South Africa. all drink to alldrinktothatpod.com that's I-L-L drinktothat P-O-D dot com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening.